Hello, and thank you for joining us for this week's episode on The Lighthouse. If you're unfamiliar with the 21st rewrite, on this podcast we look at screenplays for films written in the 21st century and share our thoughts, ideas, interpretations, and analyses of the written scripts. We intend these episodes to be full of value for aspiring and professional writers, as well as film fans in general. We would love it if you would let us know what you thought about the episode via our website, the21strewrite.com, or our official Instagram account, at 21st underscore rewrite. The Lighthouse was such an interesting read, and we probably could have talked for even longer about this screenplay. So you'll find in this particular episode we're very heavily focused on the themes and unraveling some of the mysteries that are present in the story. As a result, this is very spoiler-heavy, so if you haven't seen the film and don't want any spoilers, you can always put this on pause and try another episode. Recently we've posted some episodes with special guests, and if you haven't heard these I highly recommend them. Crash with Epasi Latumbe, The Hobbit with Tommy Savoya, and Gladiator with Stuart Voitilla. However, I do hope you're staying to listen to The Lighthouse, so without further ado, on to the episode. Hello and welcome to The 21st Rewrite, the podcast about screenplays and the process of writing them. I'm William Coldwell and I'm joined, as always, by my good friend and co-host, Alan Vasquez. And today we are going to be talking about The Lighthouse, which is written by Robert Eggers and Max Eggers and directed by one of the writers, Robert Eggers. And uh, this is a very unique film, I think. I love films that you can't put into one genre. And I think this one's definitely one that's a bit of a hybrid of a lot of different things. This is one of those scripts that has a lot of personality. Like you can really hear the writer's voice in the way they're describing things, the way that it almost felt like the script had a voice. I think it's one of those very seductive stories where it's just page by page or scene by scene, something's being like uncovered and there's like a new subtle revelation that kind of bleeds into the next scene and it just starts building up, it starts building up. But then by the end of it, you, you realize how much has happened because it feels very explosive at the end and it all kind of comes to a very crazy storm at the end, both figuratively and literally. So yeah, no, I loved it. I thought it was, it was a very, not only a great script, but I think it was a brilliantly realized film in terms of the visuals. And I think it helped that the writer was also the director most screenwriters are kind of encouraged not to write visual directions. But in this one, there was a lot of that. You know, there was a lot of very specific visual intention in there. Reading it, it was very vivid. I could see everything that he was describing, the mood, the feeling. And on screen, it kind of it felt almost the same thing that I was seeing in, in my mind. Pretty close. So have you seen The Witch? The, I have not. Film? I haven't seen The Witch. No, I'll, I'm going to now. The Witch was recommended to me by a director I met at the Austin Film Festival. And he said, if if you like historical stuff, you need to check this out because it's this unique type of horror film that is set in a historical time, but it's actually very, mm -hmm. it's very much drawing off all these different concepts. Biblical motifs come through a lot in The Witch. It's It's about these Puritans that go out and live beside a forest they've been expelled from their community because of their extreme interpretation of their faith and choose to try and live by themselves and they're harassed by this this witch that lives in the forest near to them and so that's more of a straightforward genre horror 
but still has a lot of the same identity. It's written by the two brothers, Robert and Max Eggers as well. In that particular film, they focus on the seven deadly sins, Mm -hmm. specifically lust, greed, etc., etc. And what we have in The Lighthouse, I feel, is more of a psychological horror. And very rarely does it make you jump out of your seat. And it doesn't go for gimmicks. It intentionally uses symbolism instead. In all honesty, this is one of the best scripts I've ever read, I think, just because there is so much depth there. Mm-hmm. And usually what we do on, on this show is we, we look at old drafts and we look at the evolution of a story, mm-hmm. how it was built up from an earlier version up to, up to the final version. Right. And yet with The Lighthouse, I feel like the only version to consider is the final version because that is the story. Once all of the themes and motifs and, mm-hmm. and references, there's a lot of references to the mythology of sailing to Greek mythology, all of these things. Mm-hmm. There's so much there for us to unpack that it almost does it a disservice to look back at an earlier version where that mm-hmm. stuff might not be present. It's a very confident script. And like you said, and packaging a lot of different things. And it makes sense, like you describing The Witch and how there is a lot of that. You're right. It's not a horror film per se. I think it's really, as much as it is about this sort of psychological drama, it is at the end of the day, I think, also a very human story. I think it's, which also pertains to the psychological aspect of it. Mm-hmm. it it's some form of parable. It's some form of right. metaphor for something that we'll discuss as we get into the story. Yeah, and and I love it when films have a very slow burn to them, where you know you're you're engaged from the beginning, but with every passing scene, it's like you are just way more engaged and it's it's sort of building up. I love it when when films do that. For me, one of the things that is slightly frustrating about The Lighthouse is Robert Eggers' approach to, say, interviews and discussions about the film, because he, he likes to keep his cards close to his chest. He very much encourages the audience to come up with their own interpretation. And mm. he'll he'll say this both for The Witch and for the lighthouse. I think he, that's great. He likes to sit back and say, of course I have an interpretation, mm-hmm. but I'm not going to put that on you. It's up to you to make up your own mind. And so in a way that's slightly frustrating because we don't know what the official story is in the, in that sense. We don't know what the artist himself has intended necessarily. And so I feel that as we go through this and we start discussing all of the different aspects of the story. Some of the stuff that will just be our own personal interpretation. Mm. Other parts might be something the director certainly intended, and that other parts might be something that he himself did not even think about as a possible interpretation for the film. Right. And again, this concept of madness comes in The Witch as well, very prominently. And he was asked about this, are the characters going mad? Are the events really happening? And he says, I'm not going to tell you. It's up to you to decide. Mm. And he very much took that line with the lighthouse as well. So Mm. everything we say, I think this is purely our opinion. Mm -hmm. And I think I've seen the film twice and read the screenplay. You've seen it once and read the screenplay. And presumably over time when there's a DVD release and people are able to rewatch it and discover more and more Easter eggs in the film, Mm -hmm. be able to pause it, 
we've only been able to see it while it's still in the cinema, so you can't pause it, you can't see what's in the background of certain shots and mm. things like that. So I feel there's so much more to be revealed from the mm -hmm. lighthouse as well that we're just going to be able to look at it mainly at the screenwriting level and no, you're right. I think it's one of those films that rewards repeated viewing. Uh, there's definitely a lot to sort of unpack. And I, mean, I, th I personally think it's great that he doesn't quite reveal everything because it doesn't limit anyone's sort of resonance to the story and to the visuals. I think it allows people to bring in a much more intimate interpretation of whatever it is that they, they think of it. But nonetheless, it does have a story, and, and, and there is that. And in the script, I found it kind of interesting that there was no character names for, for the characters in the beginning. Well, actually, throughout the whole script, um, they reveal names to each other. But even after that, in the script, they're still referred to as young and old. Exactly. <laughs> and which is interesting. That entirely ties back into that sense of the Eggers brothers, again, holding their cards to their chest in that sense, because if they were to put character names in the screenplay, those would be the official names of the characters. Right. And actually, we are still relying on those characters to tell us what their names really are. Yeah. Obviously, there's the major twist midway through in which the name that Young has been going by for the entirety of the story up until that point, mm -hmm. he reveals that's not really his name. Right. So our understanding of whether or not that's even the truth. Again, so much of this screenplay comes down to an exploration of the truth. And when we think of screenwriting as being based largely on conflict between characters, on-screen tension and conflict, what we have here is often a conflict over the truth itself. Mm -hmm. Who is telling us the truth? Certain things we see on screen are then disavowed by one or the other of the characters mm -hmm. again pulling us into that sense of madness pulling us into that sense of mm -hmm. never being sure about what's really happening yeah no in a way reading it was also you kind of going crazy about it too like well what does it all mean or who's right and who's making stuff up and and even by the end it's with the last visual it's like what <laughs> but nonetheless i feel the the conflict really does come from two human beings being stuck with each other for a prolonged time. And I think that kind of speaks to, it's really exploring the dark side, I think, of the human condition of which is, you know, there's, I felt a lot of the time they were judging each other's darkness and it was almost like each other's sort of judgments attracting each other. In a way, they were kind of mirrors of each other. I felt almost like they were kind of the same character in a way. In my own that, That's definitely an, an interpretation that uh, I, am, I am now favoring. The more I get into the supernatural interpretation of the story, mm -hmm. the idea that they are the same person is, mm. is a strong one. And certainly yeah. the whole screenplay can be read in that way. Mm -hmm. I, I definitely got that, that sense towards the end because they're very similar to each other. They There is a very sort of... Um, similar pattern in their behavior and the way they react to each other. Obviously, Willem Dafoe's character is um, the older one, the one that has the most experience and knowledge in Robert Pattinson's character, young guy, since he does have sort of a mysterious background because he did come from a different profession, which was lumber. So he was doing that and he 
took another name, someone that he was working with, and he took his name. Even though at one point he did say his name was Thomas, which is Willem Dafoe's character's name that he says is his name. So that to me was like kind of the first clue to sort of what I was already kind of thinking because... They do use different surnames. Thomas Wake is the elder. Right. And Tom Howard is the the younger character. Right. But still, the initial moment when, um, when Willem Dafoe gives his character's name the first time, mm-hmm. he says, my name's Tom, mm-hmm. Tom Wake, and you just see the expression change on, on Robert Pattinson's face. It's, it's clearly written into the screenplay that this is meant to be a very hard-hitting moment for him. To hear that name said out loud makes him instantly distrustful of old the character mm. simply because it almost sounds to him as if old is revealing that he knows more about young than mm. than young wishes he knew mm-hmm. yeah there's a lot of distrust between the two of them and i think it speaks to that part of i think just human condition is when you're out on the street you're not readily trusting a stranger these are essentially two strangers being forced to live with each other and to work with each other. And I think it, it speaks to the sort of paranoia that we have of one another, of what the other person's intentions might be. And and I think there's a lot of that that's in the subtext of the acting, especially. I think it keeps reoccurring throughout mm-hmm. the, the film, yeah. the fact that neither of them trusts the other. Mm-hmm. Uh, Old at one point says... I was sure you'd split my head in twain during the night or something like that. And And sure enough. Yes. And, (laughs) you know, they're they're creeping around. They're monitoring each other. Mm -hmm. They're often armed for protection from each other. And there is that sense of adult men as being like caged beasts together in this enclosed space that something bad could break out at any moment with this level of... um, intimacy that they're not actually looking for but they're forced to live in the same quarters they're forced to sleep in the same room all of this and i think it's also a a resistance of intimacy i think i could also see it that way in which i had the story been of two people forced to be with one another for a set amount of time but instead of distrusting each other they connect and they form a bond and which is the other side of the coin right but that doesn't happen here so there's a, a natural intimacy that can happen in this circumstance, but they both resist that. I think the possibility... There's a dance going on between the is. two of them, there certainly, is, where, yeah. where they become closer and they push each other away. And again, we can get into the psychological readings of, of that if we interpret them to be two facets of the same person's mind, for example, that mm. there's so many interesting... Uh, ideas that you can draw out of that about the times that they get closer to each other and the times that they're at each other's throats. And the times when they are close to each other is when they've been drinking and, you know, their inhibitions are gone and it speaks to that free side of their characters and they're connecting, they're dancing, there is that intimacy that I think they don't allow themselves to feel when they're sober because they're blocked. I feel there's a lot of judgment between the two of them, if you want to read it that way. And again, just going back to the distrust. And and I think one of the things that I also found really interesting is like a very subtle subtext of repressed 
sexuality or not sexuality, but because obviously being away for such a extended amount of time and not having uh, human contact. I'd say it isn't even that subtle. It, it's right. quite evident on screen in, in terms of yeah. uh, the self-abuse as old puts it in the logbook that uh, that Young is doing to himself <laughs> in the shed. That, that was funny, yeah. It's coming through. Um, there's definitely a lot of pent-up sexual, not, not only just pent-up sexual energy, but also the guilt that is associated with it in his own mind. Mm-hmm. And there's a scene when they are drinking together, Young asks him, do you ever feel shame when you lie with a woman? And Old just laughs and says, I never feel ashamed of anything. And so that again, that that sense of young isn't able to feel that way. For him, every kind of sexual expression comes out in some in some way that he needs to feel ashamed of afterwards. And and that kind of connects to when he says, um, old asks him if he reads the Bible or if he's a you know, a religious man and Young says that he isn't, but that he is a God fearing man. Again, the whole fear aspect of religion that's so intertwined and now that you've mentioned a little bit about what the witch is about i can see that also being a recurring theme in their work probably which is the fear that religion instills in in people and the people that really succumb to those beliefs and i think that's one example of it here and the shame that comes with the sexuality aspect of it but it's also very you know, the idea of repressed sexuality, it can be a beast and it kind of shows its its um, its face in this film when he thinks about that, that mermaid and he has the figurine and again, the shame that comes with it. There's also a scene where him and Old like almost kiss. So it's almost like they're just at that, you can't suppress it too yeah. much. Which is immediately followed by violence and they start boxing, which right. is a, a natural progression when homoeroticism is repressed it often comes out as violence instead yeah yeah it's another way to be physical and intimate with another man without actually being sexual is is right. to be boxing is to be sweating and, and exactly it's another form and it's so funny how it says in the script because it, it's describing that are they about to kiss question mark impossible or something like that it was very playful in the way that they wrote it in the script, which I thought was great because it's almost following that particular train of thought that you're speaking of, that sort of old school masculinity way of thinking, you know, where something like that is just you know, the worst thing that could possibly happen to you. And it's important to remember the set, the setting is the late 1800s. Mm -hmm. it, it's certainly not meant to be set in the modern day. I think it's worth us just very quickly going over just the setup for for the film itself. It's set on a remote island on the coast of Maine where there is a lighthouse. And there's a couple of quotes just from the, the setting in the screenplay that I would really like to look at in a bit more detail as well. The first is when the characters are first introduced to us, it says, shadows stand on the bow of the boat. They might be men, but they could just as easily be ghosts. Again, tying into these more supernatural themes, the idea that this might be some sort of purgatory, this might be some sort of place where young and old need to atone for their sins, that perhaps young is the, the one who needs to 
atone and that old could be the mentor in that in that sense the one that could get him to forgive himself all of this stuff the sense that they might not really be alive how how could they be trapped out there why can't they keep track of time how can a storm last seven months that those kind of questions start to arise the other quote i really like from the beginning after describing the two young and old the screenplay says both of them seem like the kind of man you might find muttering to himself in the corner of an empty bar room with a distant look in his eyes right from the very beginning it's introducing this idea that one or both of them is completely mad right yeah and uh kind of going into this sort of um because the way you describe old being the mentor and young sort of atoning for his sins kind of connects to something that i thought about when i was watching the film which is poseidon i kept thinking about him mythological legends of the sea and and all of that and then i did some a bit of research and finding sort of a archetype for what old might be and the young might be old being proteus in greek mythology and young being prometheus Mm -hmm. and i found that when i started reading up on those characters i could instantly see the connection absolutely so not to jump ahead but the closing shot very clearly establishes this is prometheus or at least meant to be referencing prometheus Mm -hmm. and again Something similar for me, out of rereading the Greek myths to brush up on, yeah. on Prometheus, just to really cover the, the key elements of the Prometheus character, which I think become more and more evident when you rewatch or reread The Lighthouse, thinking of Prometheus in particular. Firstly, that Prometheus was the one who brought fire to humanity. Right. And that was his great sin. Again, this the whole setting is about this the tending of this lighthouse, which is fueled by fire. It's an old lighthouse. This is pre. Mm. This is pre modernity. It's not electric. Mm. They have to put oil in it, and it's it's a burning lamp. That's why they're called the wickies. Mm. So fire is a very central motif in in the story. Secondly, that Pandora was forbidden from opening this what we call a box but was was a jar she was forbidden forever opening it Mm. and of course pandora did open the box and out of that box came everything terrible into the world illness violence disease want misery hardship starvation pain lies quarrels disputes war murder and Young is constantly trying to get into the lighthouse. Having reread these myths and reading the, that list, I feel like the Eggers brothers actually addressed every single one of those points. All of the terrible things that came out of Pandora's box, they place it on this, on this island for them to deal with. And all of these questions about truth, about violence, about murder is a prominence. Mm-hmm part of the story as well Mm -hmm. it's kind of a human of some kind is atoning for all of these sins that that have been committed and it's it's really interesting again it's hard to do a full reading of this but uh no certainly if you do read these myths again you'll see so many of the motifs that appear in the lighthouse yeah no and you're describing it like that it kind of makes it all very much a symbol or very symbolic 
young trying to attain, he's forbidden to go into the light. The whole film goes towards that moment where he's finally able to go in there and, you know, the light attracts him and he goes into it, but then it spits him back out. I didn't know about that whole Pandora's box aspect of it. And it just, if you look at young, I think the one difference between old and young, now that I think about it, old never really wanted much. Young was constantly wanting. Mm -hmm. He was the one that was constantly wanting. He had all these desires and, you know, old. That's why he's taken the job. He feels that he can get, he, he, he justifies it as he'll get enough money to then go and kind of disappear, but buy a house for himself and, and disappear. Whereas old, old claims he's tied to the sea life and that this is the only life for him. Yeah, he's accepted his fate in a way. Young is constantly desiring. He, like we see, he desires this mermaid. He's desiring, and he's the one that doesn't drink too. Old, he just very, has no inhibitions. He'll drink. Young is still sort of, I guess, trying to prove something to himself in a way. Mm -hmm. Or he's fearful of what he might reveal if he does get drunk. Or that as well. Uh, and I do, now that I see that, I think that's maybe one big difference between the two characters, which would be old kind of being, I, I didn't read too much on Proteus, but the one thing that is said is that he was the son of Poseidon and tentacles, which we often, we saw in the film here and there, you know, kind of alludes to that. He's, he's described as the old man in the sea. And he is the, the keeper of, of wisdom and someone that doesn't like to share his wisdom, which we also see in the film. And one more thing that came yeah. out just, just before I forget it as well is that Prometheus and Zeus were the designers of humanity. Mm-hmm. And initially humans were meant to be playthings for the gods. They were only going to be male humans so that they could basically just be fun little creatures for the for the gods to have worship them. So the gods only made male... At, at first, originally. Just to play with. Yeah. That yeah. is really funny to me. Um, and yeah. the, um, Pandora is the first female in the Greek myths. Right, yeah, the, yeah. The first female human. That's crazy. Mm-hmm. After his experiment goes wrong, and Prometheus gives man fire, which in the Greek myths is not meant to just be the literal fire, because presumably man could create fire by the the methods of using flint or rubbing sticks together however however you can make fire mm-hmm. it's suggested that the fire that was taken from mount olympus was something more than that it was all of the creative energy the power the the drive the ambition that is given to humanity that kind of creative fire mm-hmm. that humans have was given to them by prometheus mm-hmm. zeus chose to punish Prometheus by drowning all of humanity in a storm. Again, a, a story that's as old as humanity itself, it seems, the story of the Great Flood. But it's it's quite interesting that that's something that happens to the character of Prometheus, mm-hmm. and then the lighthouse is set almost entirely during a storm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that seems to be kind of the, the climax at the end. When you see them at their most desperate, I think, just as the storm is getting stronger, uh, I think their lowest point is them trying to make alcohol or something at the end there. Like they're just so desperate for that that high 
that they go to those lengths of just, I don't even know what they were mixing or trying to Some do. form of petroleum with honey in it, I think. Yeah, yeah. I think it was just or, like... Or oil for the lamp, yeah. Yeah, so it was just like their desperateness up to that point. So again, the, the metaphor, it goes kind of hand in hand. It's like a, like a parable, like you said earlier. It definitely feels like that. And I just do want to mention also that in the script, it's also very specific in the way that it writes how the characters act. Again, I think most screenwriters are encouraged to not write very specific acting notes. You know, you kind of give the dialogue and you don't really try to do too much other than that because then when an actor reads it, they feel limited. You know, that's not as open as uh, different ways to interpret it. But in this one, you literally see what they're thinking. So there's a lot of n- non-traditional screenwriter things. I, th- I think it works because the directions that are given are also given with the understanding that none of this is also gospel. That because some of it might not be true, mm-hmm. you're able to decide as an actor. Mm-hmm. And both actors took very different approaches to their roles. Mm-hmm. Robert Pattinson preferred to be spontaneous and to improvise a lot more, whereas Willem Dafoe has more of a theater background and preferred to be much, much more prepared to rehearse, to know when and where everything was going to be in the scene. You have these two very different characters. You have Willem Dafoe's character who's constantly going on and on in these very long monologues that feels very theatrical and Robert Pattinson's character is a bit more unpredictable and a little bit more unhinged and I think it kind of those different approaches definitely fits their characters but no you're right I think the 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 way the because the writers know the story so well and like I said it felt like a very confident script that you didn't question it like there was that is what the character is thinking it's, it's also interesting because we did The Lost City of Zed in one of our earlier episodes mm-hmm. that we heard similar things about difficulties between Charlie Hunnam and Robert Pattinson in the filming of that as well. So perhaps, it, again, his style does seem to be quite difficult perhaps for other actors on set. Right. However, when we're looking at it from this perspective of this is what we need Young to be like to make this film work, and Willem Dafoe's approach certainly goes exactly with what works for old as well. Yeah. I mean, so it's great. I mean, you yeah. can feel the tension on screen and there's nothing, there's no reason to think that that means that it, it spills over into anything personal. It's just two different approaches can actually complement each other in the same way that to go back into the symbolism of the film a lot, the way it's shot in black and white, mm-hmm. black and white complements each other. Mm. Though it's so distinct. Mm-hmm. I think that's something that, that the Eggers brothers have been trying to to show us constantly mm. throughout the screenplay is that there's a balance between good and evil that makes the screenplay great. Mm. That's a good point. Yeah, the black and white definitely contributes to that because it's, you know, light and darkness, very contrasted, mm-hmm. very evidently contrasted. There's very little gray. Mm-hmm. And truth and deception as well. Yeah. I think, you know, I, they both did a phenomenal job. I think they, had, at the end of the day, when I think when you have really good actors like that, it, I would imagine that their goal is just to 
bring authenticity and to bring the script to life, that is the ultimate goal. And however they go about it, it's just their own personal choice. I think good actors probably respect each other's process of doing that. I think I read somewhere that Robert Pattinson actually did get drunk for certain scenes just because he really wanted to go there, I guess. I mean, he certainly looked convincing. He did. That's a very interesting concept. But anyways, I think they both did a, a phenomenal job. It's just complementing each other's darkness. I think you really got to see each dark side, not just in their behavior as the character, but a very but a very energetic, soulful, I don't even know how to describe it, but there were certain looks that both men mm-hmm. did where you're like, you could see that darkness in their eyes and it, you can't fake that. You know, so I, I really was blown away by their performances for sure. So usually we need to make a decision. Are we going to go through this chronologically or look in the, the five main categories? I think this one feels like it's not your traditional plot-driven film. I think we can probably look at the five different categories, you know, story, theme, character. Great. Starting with dialogue, I think. Mm. Oh, that's a good one. (laughs) Could be a perfect one because this is such an interesting, again, building on the reputation that they had established for themselves in The Witch. Mm -hmm. The Eggers Brothers wrote The Witch entirely in 17th century English mainly lifting lines out of accounts they read from pamphlets and reports on witchcraft in New England and kind of adapting those lines and putting them into the mouths of their characters. What they've done here is taken a form of English that is very reminiscent of Moby Dick, Sailor's Tales, everything we think about um, Hmm. when it comes to these seafaring men And it makes it feel so grounded in a very specific setting, in a very specific time period. Willem Dafoe basically just has to open his mouth and suddenly you can just hear he's this old sea captain. Mm -hmm. That's exactly the character that is portrayed. For anyone who's only just seen the film once, I highly recommend either reading the script or when the film comes out to watch it again with subtitles because it is it is quite hard to follow every single line of dialogue this is true yeah i think um, it's a testament to their writing though that even though you couldn't quite understand every single word when you're watching it that the message is conveyed just simply because the actors have that information that they can you were never lost even if you didn't catch every single sentence i don't think yeah you wouldn't you wouldn't be lost in what the, the emotional story is. No, in I just scenes, think it provides know? further reward yeah. as, in the yeah. same way that being able to pause certain shots will bring mm-hmm. further rewards. Mm-hmm. Or reading the screenplay, you can see when certain props were introduced or you can see when certain directions were given to to the characters. I think with the dialogue especially, it's great to be able to know exactly which words were said. There is something very poetic about their use of language. Mm. They've certainly mulled over word choices over and over and over again until they feel like they've got the sentence just right. Yeah, and it it sounds natural. It sounds natural enough for you to not check out, I, I think. Because sometimes I'll watch something that's Shakespearean or something and I just can't connect because it just does sound like a foreign language. But this one feels like it, it marries the emotion and the text pretty well. 
But I think the dialogue was great. There's very minimal dialogue at times. You know, there'll be a few scenes that'll go by with no dialogue. It's purely visual. And then we'll have a very long scene with dialogue. You know, a lot of the scenes when they're uh, drinking together is usually the ones where we get the most dialogue because they're drunk and they're talking a lot. And, uh, and in those scenes, I never felt anything. I never read or saw anything in the film that I thought, oh, that, that piece of dialogue is not is extra. I felt like this was a very refined script. I don't know how many versions they did. Like you said, we only read this shooting script, but I thought every single sentence was important and every, every exchange was, had a intention and it never felt too polished where you felt like it was too specific. I honestly felt like the dialogue was great. It's a very difficult job to do to, be able to hide Easter eggs, to hide more lore inside the mm. the dialogue. There's a speech that Old gives on page 61 where he he just shouts, Hark, Triton, hark, bellow and bid our father, the sea king, rise up from the depths, full foul in his fury. And that whole speech goes on for pretty much an entire page. Yeah. And... It, it is so intense. Yeah. And as you mentioned, the emotional sense of the scene is evident because the lights dim, the the light focuses directly on his face, on the wrinkles, on on his old and damaged teeth, on the whites of his eyeballs and everything mm-hmm. like that. And it, it's kind of easy to lose track of the exact words he's saying, but you sense the power behind them. And then when you go back and read it, you can see that there's actually a lot embedded in that if, if, we, if you do go with the interpretation of this being some sort of retelling or a story inspired entirely by the Greek myths. That speech in particular is almost like a curse that's being given to Young. Yeah. It predicts his fate of being ripped apart by the souls of dead sailors, which are the seagulls. Mm-hmm. And... Um, yeah, it's it's extremely powerful, and it's a very interesting choice to use dialogue in that sense as not just a warning. A warning could be written in three lines, but an entire page is dedicated to to the curse that's being bestowed upon yeah upon young, and it never felt stagey either. Like I never felt like like we're watching a play. You know, I think that was another great feat of theirs where it felt natural enough that mm-hmm. it it never felt like... This could have been easily made into a play mm-hmm. had the resources for making a film not existed, for example. Oh, this could have been an, yeah. a, a play done with uh, four actors, essentially. Mm-hmm. Could have been done. You would just need the two main characters, the mermaid and, and Winslow. It'd make a great play, actually. Now that I think about it, yeah. But again, the, there's something about this where this is why I'm so excited about the lighthouse is because it's it's meant to be a film, and it feels very much that way. That this ability to show the storm in all its glory, to be on location on one of these craggy rocks. Uh, I mm-hmm. think they filmed in Newfoundland in in Canada. They built the lighthouse from scratch. I, I read that, yeah, which is great because they. It was um, catered to their needs, essentially. Mm-hmm. So that, that's why they got the those beautiful shots. And usually, well, cinematography is not usually one of the things that we talk about in uh, as one of the five, but I was just so blown away by the photography in this film. It was just 
amazing. Like every shot was beautiful. Every shot could be a photograph, I felt, mm -hmm. you know, and it's an essential part of the story. The mm -hmm. fact that it's in black and white, the fact they chose to use these cameras and then the fact they used that aspect ratio as well, not giving you the wide view, forcing you to be narrow. It gives you that claustrophobic feeling of being in that lighthouse. So, you know, and, and that was very, actually in the beginning of the script, it has very specific directions as to the aspect ratio. And it was very specific in its intention. Mm -hmm. Yeah, which is and great. Again, one reason why you couldn't do this as a play how would you make it black and white? You, you could maybe have your oh, actors... Um, All dressed in either black or white. <laughs> in, in, in full grayscale and wearing gray right. makeup. But as, yeah, essentially, if black and white is such a prominent mm. motif, it, it, it makes sense that this was shot as a film. And the sound too, you know, just really, there was, we're talking about, you know, visual motifs. There's also a lot of sound motifs as well. You have the foghorn, you have uh, that constant... Um, sort of sound of dread that's constantly there and at certain pivotal moments in the film really comes through as something of a presence in a way as well. There's a lot of sound design in which um, there's certain screams where they're muted screams and there's a bit of a static going on that kind of just gives it this very ethereal horror, mm -hmm. you know, yeah, that elevates it to something different. It's it's like when you turn an amplifier up to to max and mm -hmm. yeah, so yeah. much so much what's the word? It's not feedback, but yeah, there's that there is just that noise that, that very noise, yeah. you know, very gritty electronic yeah. noise entering a realm that's not very electronic at all. It's very physical. Right. Uh which is very unnerving when, when you mm -hmm. when you heard it. So I think all of those things kind of really were in the script as well when the foghorn was specifically written in certain moments in certain scenes. So I think all of that sound design was embedded within the script as well. Yeah, and these these are the normal sounds you hear on the coast. You hear foghorns, you hear seagulls, right. you hear the wind, you hear the rain, you hear the waves. And yet those sounds mean something completely different in the context once they're built up. Mm -hmm. And uh, very simple scenes where you think nothing is happening, such as when Young is is shoveling coal into the furnace and the foghorn is just completely blaring into his ears because he's right in the center of the lighthouse. Mm. It, that then, when you hear the foghorn again later on in the film, you're reminded of how overpowering it, it must sound, how loud it is. Yeah. And how relentless, how maddening it must be to be stuck in that one place with the same monotonous noise over and over and over again. Yeah, I mean, that's a tough life right there. And I heard, um, well, I read that it was initially based on Edgar Allan Poe's unfinished poem, The Lighthouse. It was kind of partly an inspiration. I heard that not much was translated over. And then it, it then got the inspiration from actually a true story of the two guys that were working together. I think this was actually in England, off the coast of England, when one of them, they, there was tension between the two of them and one of them died. And the one that survived didn't want to seem like he killed him. So he actually preserved his body in a coffin and had and was actually living with it until someone came. And, and then it was reported that when he went back, he was unrecognizable. Like he went mad. 
for sure. For so that was also partly an inspiration for the for the script, which I found interesting. You know, because I can't imagine being in that situation. Actually, that does sound like yeah, a bad time. Well, one of the things I think going now from dialogue into character mm-hmm. with the characters in particular, for me, there's definitely a sense that if. Young is mad. He was mad long before he got to the lighthouse. Mm-hmm. This is the the reason he's at the lighthouse is a continuation of of this insanity that is likely to do with guilt over a murder he committed in his past. Whether or not the events are actually true in in the sense of what we see unfolding is actually what happens or if this is some sort of metaphorical story about his psychological journey in in terms of being unable to move on from the murder he committed mm-hmm. in this sort of purgatory place yeah i think i think with character those are the two ways to look at it really mm. certainly the first time i watched the film i i watched it as two individuals and having that kind of mindset is is constantly challenged by the film by having mm. things happen of a supernatural nature. Having the mermaid wash up on the beach, having young spying on old up in the lighthouse and seeing tentacles. But then the, the idea that it is some sort of delusion, some sort of madness just keeps coming back, especially when he's fighting old right at the end in their battle to the death essentially and he's punching him and old transforms into a mermaid transforms into triton Mm -hmm. covered in in tentacles and and looking like a sea creature yeah it really does make you feel like the character is completely mad yeah it is and i think like you said something that i hadn't really thought of like him sort of suppressing this guilt in a way, if you want to go the metaphorical route, and it is a character study on just one character, and if both are one, if we're going to go that route, then the lighthouse could represent salvation, which is something that Willem Dafoe's character also mentions in the beginning of the film. And then you have, so if the light represents salvation, and you have the entire film of this guy trying to get up there and, and can't, and then at the very end, he tries to bury, quote unquote, his um, sin. And he, but he, he can't, you know, he comes back again and then he finally kills it and then goes to the light. Uh, but Because salvation can't be taken. It needs to be earned. Old is constantly telling him that it's his light, but one mm. day he'll be able to tend a light of his own if he works hard, if he if he focuses. Right. Again, there's that sense of old being the gatekeeper to that that place. And, he, and yeah. in in order to skip the line, essentially, by committing a murder to get up there, it's not it's not warranted, it's not earned, it's not salvation. It's just continuing a descent into further further sin, further further crime, further suffering. And which is the last thing that we see, which is him on the rocks and, you know, being punished for, for, for that. To me, that final shot pretty much just makes it a metaphorical journey for me. It's not a literal story of two men who went, one who goes crazy and kills the other. Uh, Cause it, 
why end with that shot? You know, that's a very intentional ending to something that is clearly not meant to be taken literal. And I think in order for, as a viewer, for it to be much more of a fulfilling journey, I think the whole metaphorical aspect, it's much more interesting. But if we're going to talk about uh, script writing, I found it, it was also great in terms of two characters and building tension. And you have an entire, we, we also talked about this when we were talking about Whiplash, you know, making an entire film and Ex Machina to, to a point too. You have very minimal characters and somehow you just make this like it feels like life or death. The stakes are high even though you only have two people. Yeah, and I, I would say those three, Whiplash, Ex Machina, The Lighthouse, these are some of the best screenplays we've read. Mm-hmm. Doing so much with the minimum amount of characters to, because it, as a writer, it forces you into making sure that your story is everything. Mm-hmm. Um, it's easy to pretend there's more story there, the, the idea of style over substance, mm-hmm. by having a huge cast of characters. And with the way that narrative television is now working, the idea that you can have a 10 or 13 or 24 episode season telling this huge story, endless chapters, multiple seasons where you build and build and build on on huge character arcs over a very long length of time and then you can have this huge array of characters when you're looking at film and you're choosing, should I write this as a film as opposed to a TV pilot? You're essentially saying, I have a story to tell in two hours or two and a half hours or one and a half hours. And you've got to be really confident in your story if you're going to attempt that Mm -hmm. because you don't get a part two. You don't get next week, I'll reveal more about the characters. You need to put it all in there. Every dialogue counts. It's it's almost like you're composing a song uh every note has to mean something it's building it's part of this symphony and that's something that is very very much uh the case with this script right like like i said every scene counts every exchange counts because you only have two characters and it's building this world of tension it's building this essentially this psychological war that we're witnessing um we're not seeing it in a physical way but we're experiencing it in an emotional way and I think that the, they were very skilled at doing that. And it's not so much what they're saying to, it's also what they're not saying. I think sometimes dialogue is great, but sometimes the absence of dialogue also builds a different type of relationship and tension, which is very evident here too. Like I said, there were gaps without dialogue. Yeah, one thing I've started to notice more and more, the more that I read screenplays, the more that I write myself, the idea that characters need to be differentiated and one way to do that very clearly is to just show that given the exact same conditions how these two different individuals react and Mm. the one of the first scenes we see with dialogue is with old trying to get young to drink alcohol Mm -hmm. with him right and the fact that young picks up his cup tosses the drink out into the sink and fills it up with water tells you something about the character. Mm -hmm. If you just had these two characters drinking together, it doesn't differentiate them at all. It doesn't make them memorable. But the fact that one 
chooses to go one way and the other chooses to go the other way instantly makes you think, why are these two different? Why, why won't they do the same thing? Mm. There's such an inherent sense of in us as humans of we need to act the same to get along and preserve the peace and, mm. and keep society going. But when you're doing a screenplay, you want conflict. So oh yeah, showing those exact opposite choices it's, it's the same thing in Whiplash, definitely, as well. Mm -hmm. the, the sense of one one character chooses to go with power and aggression and mental manipulation, and the other one chooses to respond with more effort, trying harder, trying harder and harder and harder to appease the teacher. Mm, and it's almost kind of, well, I, I wouldn't say more effective, but it's, it might be a little bit... I guess, easier to create that conflict when you only have two characters or it might feel more effective because it's very clear what the conflict is. You know, your, your focus is just on the two of them. And if you have great screenwriters like they are, then that's constantly in display. If you have a film that has like four characters, five characters, now you're weaving mm -hmm. so many different uh, perspectives yeah, you know, and you, very... you'll have more alliances, you'll have more right. groupings of characters, goodies and baddies, perhaps once you get to the yeah. the wider cast range or something something more like a Star Wars style film or a Lord of the Rings. So you, you have a side that you're on, and so you have right. shared goals and objectives. But when you're down to two characters, you need there to be, even if they have the same shared goal, mm -hmm. they need to want completely different methods for getting there. Yeah. And uh, so, and I think also the age factor also helped in that, that difference, you know, between uh, older generation, younger generation, different kinds of energy too. So I think that really helped in, in differentiating them. Um, so we have character, dialogue, themes. Let's we did already kind of, because we've already started. We did talk so. about that. Yeah. We've got our story and plot, I suppose. I think the plot is very, then uh i don't even know okay so for me the plot is uh you have a young man who is trying to prove himself and who wants to make money so that he can move on to the next thing and he feels like this is a an endeavor that's going to get him that and you have a, an old man who in a way may seem he's trying to sabotage the younger one which is something we haven't gone into is sort of his intentions with that. And so I, the plot, again, is not like Ex Machina and Whiplash. It doesn't have a very elaborate plot. It's very simple. And Yeah, and there, are scenes, there are scenes where they're painting the lighthouse or getting oil to refill the lamp or he's facing off with the seagull or he's he's throwing the chamber parts out into the sea that these are things that are just yeah. again there's a sense of building up with mundane activities a very profound story it's an emotional story in 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 a, in a way it, it's not really trying to say that this did this and this happened because of this happened it's more about because this person said this in this way this person now reacted in this way it's more deeper than that it's more about the emotional complexity or reactions from one action to the other or from someone saying something it's all about atmosphere about setting tone i think that's kind of how i would see it 
with the midpoint, I think, mm -hmm. there's a sense that uh, you can have this as a plot device that the storm comes and that changes everything because they've been living in the the easy version of the lighthouse life previously and then the storm comes. But then there's also a sense that the storm is the result of character decisions as well, which is an interesting concept. It's not something you could do in every screenplay, but in a supernatural screenplay like this one, you can. The fact that Young beat the seagull to death and the fact that he had challenged Old into, into getting frustrated with him, both of those things seem to have caused the storm itself. Mm. And that that whole, the initial plot that you you kind of lined up of him, he's escaping his past, he's, he moves to this lighthouse, he wants to make the money to leave, mm -hmm. suddenly becomes imp impossible because the storm comes and mm -hmm. so no ship will come to pick them up. Mm -hmm. And one thing that I, I that came to me was that uh, maybe Willem Dafoe is a bit of his conscience because he's writing on that book that also Young is trying to get to so he's just writing down, you know, and it's a full list of of all of his crimes, all of the all of his misdeeds. Right. So he's kind of listing all this stuff together, which you know implies that this is his guilty conscience, and that's what he kind of represents. And he's trying to bury this thing that's reminding him of what he did, of his sins. So you can look at it that way as well. Yeah, I I think that becomes. Once you get past the midpoint and once you're in, in the storm, the psychological storm as well, there's that moment where, where they get drunk together. Going back to the concept of alcohol and the fact that he was, he was not drinking because if Young is aware that he, he is suffering from delusions, he fears he's going mad and he fears that he must have noticed at some point in his past that alcohol was making it worse. It didn't make it go away by stopping drinking, but it makes it much worse. His hallucinations and his um, supernatural thinking gets worse and worse, and, and he loses track of what happens. Mm -hmm. He becomes aggressive. He forgets things. There's all these different implications when he starts drinking, but it's when the storm comes that old convinces him Mm. He says he'll, he won't take no for an answer and he, he should have a drink for, because it's the last night and they're going to be picked up the next day. But once he starts drinking again, he's completely off the rails. He's not going to stop. And so in a way, it's almost as if that conscience character old is convincing him to lose his inhibitions enough so that he can forgive himself. And when they get drunk together and they get very close and they almost kiss there's that sense of that is the turning point, that that moment of actual intimacy and I suppose approaching each other without shame and then immediately it's responded to with shame, it, it's clear which path he's going down and then the descent really continues. It's, it's a very interesting scene. I'd, I would really like when the... Blu-ray version comes out that there'll be a director's commentary and and that. Like, what scene did in, you mean? <laughs> yeah, what that scene in particular uh, would be really interesting to see that broken down. That's a very interesting perspective because, I mean that that does make sense if if we're going down the route of 
Uh, I never thought of, you know, Willem Dafoe's character kind of encouraging forgiveness of himself. But that's... It's a hard one because it's, again, there's so, there's so much in the screenplay where you can read it one way, but you'll find evidence to the contrary. And there's certainly a sense of that character being very very abusive towards Young as well and, and too controlling and too demanding and pushing him to his limits. But it does resonate in a way because they do share a very tender moment, you know, when they're kind of holding each other and you have Willem Dafoe who's, who's singing essentially to him. And it's the only time we really see that character so vulnerable and, and soft and open like that. And and then you kind of see them together. I think it's after they're drunk and they're kind of lying down and he's saying like, uh, do you trust me or do you, and he says that he, that he does and then eventually says he doesn't. Uh, I think that is the only time we really see them actually genuinely intimate with each other. But then it's broken. But that's that's actually very that's food for thought. I, that's a really intriguing perspective that Willem Dafoe's character could potentially be a symbol for forgiving himself. Or yeah, yeah. Perhaps again, this is just a no. I know, a yeah. train of thought that can be expanded mm-hmm. on. Perhaps a lot of the a lot of the requirements that old has for young in order to become a real true wiki, as he would put it, seems to be about taking on some form of responsibility and seriousness in his work and showing a dedication to the job that goes beyond just wanting to get by, get the money and get out of there. Um, mm. he, he does seem to be encouraging this sort of engagement with life and with responsibility. So perhaps mm. it is there, but it's... Again, it's a tough, it's a tough reading, but it does make sense when one thinks of the story in in those terms of if the if old is a manifestation of Young's mind, why why would that manifestation appear? What is it trying to get him to do? What is it? What change is it trying to cause in him? Well, I think that if going on that train of thought. One of the things that I maybe was expected of him that he didn't do was he did do his job, but he always did it begrudgingly. You know, there was never a sense of, which I mean, it's understandable. It's not the most exciting job. But if we're talking in a metaphorical way, that if his job was to atone for his sins and get to that light, he didn't do it enthusiastically or humbly. You know, he, he wasn't very happy doing it. And there's that one scene where Willem Dafoe says, you didn't wash this floor. And he's kind of talking back to him. And uh, I mean, reading it and watching it, I'm totally on Robert Pattinson's side. I was like, well, he was just, he did do it, you know? But, but you know, in a film that's unclear, he could have imagined that he did it, but maybe he, it's not clear. So yeah, I could see the, I could see the evidence of maybe that being a possible possible explanation the amount of doubt in the screenplay and in the film itself is always going to make it hard for us to to ever get a full understanding of of the story because essentially there are there are points where we 
do witness something on screen and then old would tell us the opposite has happened this yeah. happens with that scene that you just mentioned which is a really good point when young has been scrubbing the floor mm. and old is saying it's not clean you you haven't been scrubbing it you haven't been yeah. you barely even tried that doubt continues when they can't keep track of how long the storm has been going on what day of the week it is and then finally there's that huge bit of doubt it's around the time that young confesses his crime of having murdered winslow and taken his name mm. and old is saying you you spilled your your beans you shouldn't have done that after that point it feels like they can't trust each other at all and mm. um young tries to take the lifeboat the dory out and escape from the island mm -hmm. and we see old come out with an axe and smash up the the lifeboat when they get into the kitchen again old is claiming that young did that but we just saw old did it old says i knew you was mad when you smashed up the lifeboat just now at chasing me with an axe trying to kill old tom don't you trust me tommy but we've just seen him do it right and so that doubt is just introduced into us and it's very hard to to get a full reading on the story because of it right i know that is i'm just trying to make sense of it as i'm talking right now because uh, i was trying to make this point of he's running away from his culpability or his the atonement part because this was right after he he did spill his beans he he did confess you know and this is towards the end a little bit he's trying to run away now because now it's out in the open so maybe there's something that happens when when someone's done something so horrible like that it takes it to a new level of real because one's been suppressing it for so long that it just becomes so tangible therefore the storm stronger and the the inclination or the impulse to run away from it because it's so big and and then trying to lie i think that's the next step is like you're trying to cover it up you know deny 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 which could then explain uh willem dafoe like saying like no you you did that you're the one that's crazy so there's that back and forth the the losing the sense of reality of what's real what's not because he's been sort of lying to himself in a way yeah this character who's unwilling to engage with the truth that mm -hmm. is the truth within himself yeah and it sets it up actually yeah it's natural that it follows that the world around him isn't truthful that it's full of delusions and, and right. lies yeah and and it's and i think the film sets up that particular idea in the beginning when he sees those logs on the ocean like he sees logs in the sea which those logs from his past mm -hmm. so from the very beginning the the film sets up that thread intentionally yeah. when you're writing this is the stuff that you you naturally develop your story or at least this is a way that i interpret it or the way that i would go about writing it so it, hopefully this could be useful as a method of thinking about this but you build up your story you know where your story is going and then you go back to the earlier part and drop in those bits as foreshadowing for right. your audience again talking about ex machina again that's a screenplay that does that so well that every single probably the first 10 scenes of ex machina set up things that will be 
completely necessary for the ending of the story. Mm-hmm. Setting up the rules and regulations of the world that, that the characters are operating in. The Lighthouse plays about with it a bit more fluidly, I think. It's not so much about this key or this the logbook or anything specific will lead to something at the end, but it keeps foreshadowing it. It brings in the one-eyed seagull, which is the spirit of the the murdered lighthouse keeper. It brings in the logs, the memories of the the murder of Winslow from the Canada Lumber Company. And it it also introduces this mermaid and some of the supernatural ideas of of old being some form of Poseidon or Triton. So those are introduced really early on, mm. but they're never explained, no. which is a difference to other types of screenwriting where you, you're setting up those early bits so that yeah. it all comes together at the end and the audience goes, ah, uh, with this one, it's more, you're setting it up so the audience knows where you're going when you start developing those ideas and you reveal, instead of just revealing out of nowhere, oh, he killed someone, it's that his conscience has been bringing up these memories time and time again, and then they get explained. I mean, it's all kind of uh, ambiguous, and it starts ambiguous, ends ambiguous, but by the end you have a certain connections, certain motifs, and actually uh, I just remember the part where old is telling young, you know, I could just be a figment of your imagination. I could, I can't, I can maybe not even be real. So, I mean, mm. he even says that. So you might not even be on wink, the lighthouse. Yeah. Also, I, the idea just came to me of what if, you know, this light, let's say the lighthouse is real and you have that logbook. And in that logbook is, let's say that represents the sins and the list of the people that he's murdered. He's gone mad. And it also, when you said that the, the one I'd see call could be the spirit of the murdered sailor or the murdered um, wiki. Because there's a lot of seagulls and they're constantly kind of drawn to, to young. And I'm just thinking like, what if young is the fake one? What if old is real and young is who he was when he killed the first one, when he killed the guy that he's, the blonde guy that he sees, Mm -hmm. like that was his first sin. Young insinuates that at one point Mm. he claims Young claims that he's caught old in a lie, mm. that he knows his secret to, that is that he killed his junior. And it it's a it's a point that has no answer in the screenplay, certainly. Yeah. yeah. Um but it again gives us more material to think about because it's not as straightforward as just perhaps just Young's story. There's the fact that Old is constantly changing his story. Mm-hmm. Uh, he he changes the story about how he broke his leg. Mm-hmm. He changes the story about surviving scurvy, uh, different tales of, of his sea adventures, mm-hmm. things like that, that we hear him. Uh, we watch and witness this, and we hear his, his different tales. And when Young questions them, when he says that they don't make sense with what he said before. Old says things like, you must have misheard me. Uh, mm-hmm. So that that constant re- referencing back to this sense of uh, never really knowing the truth. and mm-hmm. Yeah, no, it's really interesting. I mean, you could, 
almost see it. Uh, yeah, you can see it a number of different ways. But now I'm thinking like it could be old man seeing himself through his younger self, younger self's perspective and going through that journey through his younger self when there might have been redemption. I don't know. There's Again, we don't know. Ways. We don't know how long this character stays on the lighthouse. And we don't know what level of transformation is possible living completely isolated on an island that might be completely cut off from from society and the, the boats aren't able to get to it. So yeah. we we don't know. It is possible to say that the character that arrives at the lighthouse is not the one that dies there. That's certainly a possibility. And yeah, the dead body that is mm. on the island, there's a story there to, to be uncovered. And the mm. fact that I know Robert Eggers referred to the one eye motif and said that someone, he said, if you watch this in, in a group, one of your group will know what the one eye motif is meant to be. That's a very uh, bold statement. Very enigmatic answer. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but that's probably the most uh, straightforward answer you'll get out of Robert Eggers. On Which his, still answers nothing. Yeah. <laughs> um, it, it is true that in the Greek myth, and maybe this might be part of the inspiration, is that mm -hmm. the, the people who bind Prometheus to, to tie him up for his fate of being picked apart by vultures which in this story replaced by seagulls mm -hmm. are the cyclopses, the, the one-eyed giants of legend in Greek mythology. Mm -hmm. So again, uh, in every Greek myth you read around Prometheus, you'll find, you'll find tie-ins to, to the story that's told in the lighthouse. So if we see it primarily as being influenced by Greek mythology, the cyclops is there. Hmm. That's fascinating. I mean, this is one of those films that just has so much to to go on, and 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 the type of film that you know, I'm sure in a couple of years when I watch it again, I'll have a completely different perspective on it, or different, um, certainly a different emotional uh, resonance to it. And I think that's one of the things about good screenwriting too, or, or in a film like this, is that it's very subjective to the viewer. So you bring whatever it is that you are carrying in your own life at that moment and you use the film as a way to sort of unlock certain things within yourself. I mean, I certainly, I, I know maybe a lot of people don't do that, but I do that. Whenever I watch a film, I very much project myself onto it. It's it's a very overlooked part of a film in in the sense that a lot of people know this and a lot of people talk about this, but when it comes time to writing your screenplay, you're not thinking that way because you have a story you want to tell. Mm -hmm. And especially in, in different genres, there's different places for this. So if you are telling the true story of a court case, you might not be thinking that necessarily. You might be trying to work so hard with all the details that you have about the court case. Right that you forget that within your audience, you're going to have a lot of subjective, different opinions. And some people might have personal memories of, of an event like this, and others will be hearing about it for the first time. And mm. all of the things that we bring in, Greek mythology is something, I'd say some people know it, but you can't expect your average American audience to be entirely up to date with all of the Greek myths. 
Right, right. But it's it's there. I think they certainly were working with it. One thing that you can take away from this in terms of if you want to write something interesting like The Lighthouse is that you don't need to retell the story. We hear about this a lot with screenplays, for example, saying this screenplay is a retelling of Romeo and Juliet or a retelling of Hamlet. With The Lighthouse, they're not retelling it there, taking themes that they encountered in another story and writing a completely different story. And that's a very different thing to retelling a story. So they're referring heavily to where they got the inspiration. But this isn't the story of Prometheus. There's right. At no point does he take fire to humanity or, right. or have a falling out with Zeus. No, no, I totally get what you're saying. It's just heavily influenced by it, like you say. It's it, And I think that just adds more to the subjective experience because if it was a retelling, then you're kind of bound to whatever that meant and what the implications of what that story is. But if it's not a direct retelling, then you bring more to to the to the story from your own perspective, which is the brilliance of the of the of the film, which is like it can be catered to anyone, really. And then I mean I really hope it brings a lot of viewers. I think it will. I think it's one of those films that will eventually get some sort of cult following. I think it must, yes. Yeah. This is a very special project, I think. And yeah. Robert Eggers is certainly a director to watch out for because I think at this point now, having two small sleeper hits, mm -hmm. the third film will be something big. He's now established as a name and he's not going to have to make films that are, oh, could you try and fit it into this location and we can give you a budget of about this much. Mm -hmm. I mean, these these two were both produced by A24, which is churning out really brilliant cinema right now i agree so it, i think it would be great if they continue to work together but if he goes over to the studio system the sky's the limit and i hope he gets in in some way i kind of hope he gets a blank check project as well where he'll be free to kind of do whatever he wants I hope without so. a budget. i really hope so because you know another trend that i see a lot too is when they get really really talented filmmakers who start off doing films like this and then are taken to a studio film and they lose their voice because now they're run by a committee and because now the stakes are higher because the budget's higher and then they need to market certain demographics in order for them to guarantee money back to the investor so then it gets really you know gets really gray but i would hope that yes he does get a blank project and he's like here's a hundred million dollars Go tell a story. Yeah, that tell, would be, tell us a sci-fi epic. Or I would love to see what that looks like for sure. It's interesting what what I've heard about his his history and him getting involved in in film is that a lot of the projects he started trying to pitch, he was told they were too abstract. So there is a a sense of when you're doing film, you do need to remember that at some level, the stuff you're making needs to be somewhat universal it needs to be something that an an audience it it can be artistic it can be as and i think it should be in, in ideal conditions all all mm -hmm. directors should be trying to do the most artistic uh passion project that they can do but it's also good to have some limitations and someone telling them mm -hmm. well what you're going for here is a bit too abstract because i think what's actually happened is that 
he and his brother have become phenomenal writers as a result of this, as a result of having to prove, okay, we really need to see why all of these ideas are in the screenplay. You can't, you can't pull the screenplay apart anymore. Like every scene leads to a decision, mm-hmm. which is exactly what a screenplay needs to do. Every character decision leads to the next event. Mm-hmm. And it all builds up to an ending. And mm-hmm. apparently the two brothers weren't sure about the ending. This is this is Robert's ending. Um, and Max finally came around to the idea of it and said, yeah, that's the only thing that you can do is to have this reveal of Prometheus. So that ending certainly is not just tagged on. It's something they've clearly, clearly thought about and decided it's the only way to end the story. And it's also a way of giving the audience that subjective experience because if you would have ended it with the scene before that is him falling down the the stairs, right? He gets to the light, he gets thrown out. I mean, if it would have ended in a more literal way, it would have limited the metaphorical aspect that then you could bring whatever meaning it is to that. But because it ends on such a, what, kind of moment that now your mind is like, okay, okay, hold on. So what is it about then? Like now, now your mind is given that encouragement to go and figure it out yourself. So I thought that was also pretty good of them to finish it in a very ambiguous and striking visually it's it's beautifully shot the ending. It's yeah. it's very memorable. Very oh, for sure. it's yeah. burned into my eyeballs. Mm-hmm. I loved it. Yeah. It's great. And that again it it works so well because of that early introduction of little bits of antagonism between seagulls and young and then that building up to the murder of a seagull and this sense that they're coming for him, that their revenge is going to be coming. Yeah, yeah. No, it's one of the most visually beautiful films I've seen in a, in a while, for sure. And yet, to, to think of it as a purgatory story, if there is a limbo, if there is a purgatory, where someone such as this who has committed a murder is given a second chance... There's only two ways out of it. There's the light at the top of the lighthouse, or there's eternal suffering, and it's pretty clear which result he gets. Oh, that's so brilliant. I hadn't even thought about it. Like, okay, now like it's all just kind of coming to me, <laughs> literally in this moment. You know, he does, because usually with purgatory, that's such a perfect symbol for reaching the other side, which is the light, the lighthouse, and it's in an island. It's like the last stop. And we see this character get to this island. It's the last stop before whatever's coming next. And he's almost there. He was almost, but he got kicked out. He he wasn't, he didn't earn that light. And another, crazy. just, I mean, we can add one, tag one more thing on here. Another prominent idea from Greek mythology of the underworld is that you have to cross the river Styx to get to the underworld. You have to pay the ferryman to take you across. That's uh, The Greeks used to leave coins on the eyes of, of the dead to pay the ferryman for the passage across. Mm. And when you transport that into... Th- these locations are very personal to the Eggers because they, they grew up in New England. Mm. So they're basing it on, on a location that they're familiar with. And it's now about crossing this, this small part of the ocean to get to the island. Mm-hmm. 
And then you wait there. For what? What do you wait for? How long do you wait? There's the light at the top. There's suffering and death and eternity below. And when he does get to the light, it refuses him. There's 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 a lot to read into it there. That's that's crazy. Yeah. Well, that's lovely. I've, I've discovered things while I was while I'm doing this. Well, maybe he was just <laughs> mad. <laughs> or that, yeah. I mean, I don't think there's a, a wrong answer. Which is that that's why I do appreciate uh, Robert Eggers saying that he's not going to disclose what his intentions were, because then it does kind of limit the what you can bring to it so i thought i think that's great yeah i know that um i don't know how soon but we'll have our year in review recap episode at some point and i'm sure this is going to come out on top or be a strong contender for the best screenplay that we've that we've read for for this cycle because oh, for sure Finn. it's it's memorable it's yeah. very deep thematically uh, the the use of all the historical ideas, the the authentic dialogue, mm-hmm. the great characterization, everything. It's it's, it's, it's all, astounding. Yeah, I know. It's a towering feat, in my opinion, for sure. Yeah. All right. So, uh, should we leave it there? Sure. Yeah. I mean, um, we could talk about this endlessly and analyze as much as we can. But I, you, uh, the listener, you could do that with your friends and it's definitely a film that now i wish uh, we could have gone together well i mean in a way we did discuss it but this is definitely a film that you want to watch with people and then talk about it afterwards because i that's it's a lot of fun yeah i do encourage the reading of the screenplay itself it's a great accompaniment to to the film at least until we get a director's commentary i think it's a very entertaining read like honestly the, the way this the script is written it, it like the script itself has a personality, I feel. It has definitely has a voice, so I yeah, I recommend that too. Okay, great. So let's leave that there. This okay. will be our this will be our last recording for the year. Yeah. Uh, so I'll see you in, in January when I get back. Yes. And yeah, for the for our listeners, I'll have a few episodes for them with some special guests who are lined up on the other side of the Atlantic. Cool. I'll be a listener now. Yeah. For the next couple. Awesome. Thanks again for listening and continuing to support the 21st Rewrite. If you do listen to us on Apple Podcasts, please could you leave a review? It really would help us out. In the coming weeks, there's going to be a couple of very special episodes before the new year. So I'm very much looking forward to recording those and posting them for all of you to listen to. Thank you again for listening. And goodbye for now.